I actually got hit pretty hard with something uh, that I want to share with you. So I was uh, reading the 119th Psalm. If you're familiar with the 119th Psalm, that Psalm is all about the Word of God. And it's all about uh, admiration and the praise for the Word of God. And in the 119th Psalm, verse 103, it says, Lord, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my lips. And when I read this, I caught hit with this image, this object lesson that I heard years ago. I don't know if I heard it in church. I don't know if I heard it in seminary. I don't know if I read it in a book, watched it on YouTube. I don't know where I heard it, but I remember hearing it. And uh, it was about this particular Hebrew school in which the teacher would take these cookie wafers and he would write these Hebrew letters on the wafers. And then he would dip these wafers in honey and he would give it to each of the children as they just were entering. Hebrew school. So these are kids five and six years old. And then as they were eating these wafers, he would say, may the word of God be sweet to your soul as this is sweet to your tongue. And uh, it just hit me so hard because I pray that the word of God might be sweet to us. So in lieu of that, uh, or rather in light of that object lesson, if you look in the seat pocket in front of you, there's these little wafers that you could pull out and you can eat. I made some of you all look. I didn't put wafers. <laughs> I, I didn't put. Listen, if I put little wafers and I told you guys to eat this, that'd be so creepy. I don't know how that'd work out. But, but I hope that we got the point. I hope you got the point. And the point that hit me, because, you know, sometimes when you're preparing a sermon, I'm just trying to get through it. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to put the, the academic piece to it. I'm trying to put the communication piece to it. And uh, the Lord kind of slowed me down. I was like, uh, how about you just enjoy the word a little bit? Because here's a beautiful thing, is when you enjoy the word, uh, it'll flow out of you. And when you enjoy the word, it doesn't become a burden and a chore to read it. Like, you know, sometimes we just read the word out of root discipline, and we do it because good Christians do it. But if it's sweet and there's a pleasure to engaging the word of God, you'll come back again and again and again. I I don't know if you know this, but you don't have to tell children to ask for more candy because it's sweet. And so my prayer is that the word of God might be sweet to us. So if you would, in light of that, I pray that I'd rather bow your hearts as I pray for the word of God to be sweet to us this morning. So most high God, we just thank you that you're here, that you're present, Lord God. We thank you, Lord God, that we have the honor, the joy, the privilege to enjoy your word this morning. I pray that the word of God would be ever sweet to all of us here, myself first, Lord God. And Lord God, I pray that we would enjoy you as we enjoy the word. Lord God, touch our minds that we might understand, Lord God. Touch our hearts, Lord God, that we would feel the things that you feel. Touch our hands that we would do the things that you call us to do, Lord God. Lord, your word says that you have been our dwelling place. And Lord, from everlasting to everlasting to everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So we pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people say, amen, amen, and amen. So as you know, we've been on this journey for the last uh, 40 days, which is more like two months of 40 days of love. And when myself and our lead pastor, Phil, uh, got together in in the summer to see what study, what campaign we were gonna do in the fall, we had a couple. 
uh, that we were debating between. But then we just thought about this unique moment in our church history. And, and it was unique, especially over the summer, even into the fall, because we saw a huge growth of people returning back to church and new people coming and being part of our church community. And so there are so many new faces that I don't even know, uh, so many faces that as you look around, you're like, I've never seen that face before. And we said, you know what? This is a time to press into love. This is a time to press into love because if we're going to go forward, if we're going to grow, we have to have a stronger love for God and then a stronger love for one another. And so our Sunday sermons have been centered around this topic of love. If you've been involved in a life group, the life group series and videos have been centered on love. And today, I have the unique privilege of closing out this whole conversation that we've been having regarding love. And this is kind of challenging because God is love and God is eternal. And so there's always something else that can be said regarding love. There's always something else that can be added to the subject of love. And so as I thought about what we would talk about to close out this whole series and session on love, I thought it would be most appropriate for us to have a lasting image or impression of love. And so I want to share one of the stories of the Bible regarding love that gives us a picture of what love looks like. You know, the Bible does most of its teaching and talking through narrative, through story. Um, because you know why? We as human beings, we remember stories. We remember those narratives. In fact, every moment we are living out a story. And when you come home from work, you know what you do? You tell stories. Whether it's, I got stuck in traffic, and then I got to work, and the coffee spilled on me. It's a story. We live in stories. We connect with stories. We identify with stories. And, and even sometimes when I preach and someone comes uh, to me afterwards and uh, they say, man, this was really meaningful, almost always the things that's meaningful to them is one of the stories that I shared. Because stories leave a deep impression upon our hearts. And the Bible is filled with these impressionable stories. Whether it's that story of the father who sees his son a far distance off and runs and hugs him. Or just that image of Christ hanging on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Bible is filled with stories. And so I want to share with you one such story that many of you, if you've walked with the Lord, are familiar with. And it's the story of the Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan. Who here has heard that story? All right, so about 15% of you that felt like you had the energy to put up your hands. I know how it goes. I, I, I know how it goes. I, you just sit there like, I don't want to put up my hand. <laughs> but I'm sure that the vast majority of you all have heard the story of the Good Samaritan. And so we're going to dive into this. And the way that I'm going to structure this story is a little bit different, or rather this teaching a little different, is I'm not going to just give us some bullet points of like, do this, do this, do this. But rather I'm going to give some questions that I believe that we ought to reflect upon that the story of the Good Samaritan challenges us towards. So with that being said, uh, turn your attention to the screen as we engage in Luke, the 10th chapter, with the story of the Good Samaritan. This is a parable that Jesus tells. All right, it says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? 
He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, I have to do justice to to the text and give you some uh, subtext, pretext, background to what's going on here. So Jesus was a rabbi. A rabbi is a teacher. And Jesus had followers. In fact, we know that he had followers that numbered into the thousands. Because if you remember the story where he multiplied the fish and the loaves, that was 5,000 men. So if you include even the women and children, most people would estimate that he was eclipsing 10,000 followers. So Jesus was from this rabbinical tradition. Now, we don't believe that he was actually formally trained as as a rabbi, but he still operated within that rabbinical tradition. Now, as you can imagine, there were other rabbis. And at that time, rabbis would actually challenge one another because they wanted greater esteem. Who would have ever guessed? (laughs) And so rabbis would actually come and they would actually challenge one another for the sake of having the esteem of being the most preeminent rabbi. And this would happen a lot of times in public spaces as it's happening right here, as, as this rabbi, this teacher of the law comes and he actually challenges Jesus in front of others while Jesus is teaching. Now, the best analogy to give you guys a picture of what this was kind of like, I could think of, is like early 90s or late 80s hip-hop culture. You see, in the late 80s, early 90s, there used to be these things that were called rap battles, You see, that's kind of a lost art in hip-hop today because hip-hop has become so commercialized. But when it started, um, it was rap battles would take place on street corners. So this is how it worked. Um, You'd be in one neighborhood on one block, and you got known for being that person that was able to put together words, lyrics, using alliteration, rhyme, rhythmic speech, and people esteemed you as the rapper on the block. You were king of your block. You could go a few blocks over and there was someone else that was known for putting together lyrics, rhymes, using alliteration, and they were the king of their block. And at some point, someone would creep over to the territory of another rapper and all of a sudden, that was now a challenge and what we would call a rap battle. And they would go back and forth, giving their best lyrics. And at some point, the entire crowd would give a consensus as to who won the rap battle. Now, the consensus might not have been unanimous, but there would be a clear majority one way or the other. So if we were to rewind 2,000 years ago, go back to the Middle Eastern Jewish culture, it wasn't a rap battle, but it was a rabbi battle. And the way that a rabbi battle would be initiated is one rabbi would go to another rabbi while they're teaching and they would start to ask them questions, hoping to trip them up, hoping that they would not be able to answer. And then they themselves would obviously then give the wise and insightful perspective so that the whole crowd would know that they are the most preeminent rabbi. Jesus understands the dynamic that's happening here. 
So when this expert in the law, by the way, an expert in the law, um, this isn't like legal stuff like we think of here in the 21st century. This meant that they were experts in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, and they were also experts in understanding the traditional understandings of the Torah. So when we say expert in the law, it was someone that was expert in the Torah. Now, these experts, by the way, uh, most, most scholars just agree, they had pretty much the entire Torah memorized. Like from Genesis to Deuteronomy, they just had it in their brains. Like they recited it. Like, so Paul would have been one of these types of people that would have had it all memorized. So they were really familiar. So this guy came as an expert in law, and he was sharp. And so he initiates this rabbi battle with Jesus, and Jesus does a, a kind of a jujitsu move on him, flips it at him. And he's like, he's like, so what does it say? He's like, and the guy then is kind of has to answer the question because after all, he's an expert in the law, so he should know what it says. And so he answers, and he gives actually the most appropriate question, answer for the time by quoting uh, Deuteronomy the sixth chapter verse four, and he says, um, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind." And he get, that's the summation of the law according to Jew- Jewish tradition. So so he's giving this great answer. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Go and do it and you'll live. Well done. <laughs> Honestly, that's how it was. If I was able to reenact it, it was kind of like this. It was like my man was sitting here and Jesus was like, all right, this is a great question. Um, can you give us the answer to the question? And the guy's like, yes, I can. And he gives the whole answer to the question. And Jesus is like, great job. Good job. Look at this guy. Isn't he so wise? Like, oh, man, like, he's a smart guy. He, he asked a question. He knew the answer to the question, and he just wasted some of our time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now, when he did that, this other expert in the law, he caught what was going on, and he realized in that moment he had just now lost the rabbi battle. And so what does he do? It says he tries to justify himself. So he realizes he just now lost. So he's like, wait, wait, wait. I got something else to say. I got, it's almost like after the rap battle, he's like this. I got one more line. I got one more line. And so he says, but who is my neighbor? And basically what, what the teacher of law is trying to say is uh, uh, the real question I was always asking all along if I had the time is who is my neighbor? And now Jesus starts to supersede this rabbi battle that's going on. And now he turns it into a, a moment where he can actually give some life-giving teaching to the people where he can actually uh, give them a story that's going to linger within him. So he, he, he's, he's already dismissed the battle at this point, and now he's going to go into deep truth that's going to actually be spiritually edifying to them. And so he goes into the story, this parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's read the story. It says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went with him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took, him out, took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, I want to do a little sidebar here. Uh, that, that last little phrase here by the expert in the law, uh, remember the Jews and the Samaritans have tons of tension. There's tons of tons of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans because the Samaritans were a mixed race. So they were Jews who had intermarried and uh, exchanged some of their religious practices with the pagan cultures around them. And so the Jews found that ultimately detestable because they saw the Samaritans as people that were kind of posing as Jews but really living like pagans. And so the Jews had a really strong disdain for the Samaritans, even to the extent that that Jews wouldn't even walk through their territory. If they had to take an extra day or two to get where they want to get to on their journey, just to walk around their territory, they would do that. And so at the end, uh, when this uh, teacher of law, uh, where Jesus asked the question, who was the one that was the neighbor, the teacher of law doesn't even want to say the Samaritan. He says the one Uh, who had mercy, because he doesn't want to even bring that word Samaritan to his lips. Just as a little sidebar. But what's interesting is as we dive into the story, um, it illustrates what does it mean to live out love in a very poignant way. It illustrates what does it mean to be even an outsider on some occasions, but to still love regardless. The story is layered of with compassion, mercy, and grace. And I believe, as I said earlier, that the story of the Samaritan challenges us. It challenges us. And I believe it challenges us with some questions. Because when we see this story, we see the Levite and the priest walk by this man who was beaten up and broken. Now, the priest and the Levite both represent religious figures, You know, you would think at least the pastor would stop. At least the pastor would stop. And if the pastor uh, couldn't stop, wouldn't the pastor at least go and get some help? Wouldn't he call for for backup? This person was broken on the the road, left for half dead, it says. He He was beaten up, he was bloodied and dying, and they just crossed the other side. Now, you know, in the culture, there's ritual purity, so that might have been the reason they were called, they crossed the other side. But at the end of this day, when you hear the story, there's something that would cringe inside of you to say, that's not right. But then Jesus introduces this other character into the narrative, the least expected character, the Samaritan, the antithesis of a priest or a Levite, the holiest of Jews. Now we have this Samaritan that actually has compassion on this man that is broken, left for dead on the road. And he's the one that begins the healing process for this broken man. And I believe that the the example challenges us in four ways. The first way is that this example of Samaritan begs a question Will we love even when we're busy? Will we allow love to interrupt the busy schedules that we have? You see, we're in the Northeast. Northeast is a really busy area of the country, if you know that. You know, I've had uh, the privilege of traveling to over 20 countries, over 30 states, and man, the Northeast is like 
five times uh, busier and faster paced than all the places I go. You know, in fact, my, the, 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 my favorite place in the whole world, you know where it's at? San Diego. Ooh, I love San Diego. Right now, just when I say San Diego, I have like a temporary like vacation. And I love San Diego. And you know one thing I love about San Diego? It's like everyone there is like chill. It's like, it's like, it's all good. It's groovy. All this, like, I, I love it. And, 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 and San Diego's nice and slow paced. But here, you, you could get, you, you could have, uh, your heart is racing just by walking outside. I, you know, I'm a professor at a community college. And the students are knocking me over to get wherever they have to get to. It's, it's crazy over here. And you know what's, what, what, what it is, is though, our busyness sometimes makes it so that we have blinders to actually experience the compassion of God that would motivate us to love those who are hurting even around us. And, and, and the question I, I ask is, are you so busy that love has no right to interrupt that busy schedule? Now, I'm all about being productive. I'm all, being productive is a wonderful thing. But here's the difference between being productive and being busy. When you're productive, you use your schedule as a tool to get things done. When you're busy, your schedule is your slave master. And many of us have a whole bunch of slave masters. Because when our schedule is set, nothing can interfere, stop it, slow it down. And a lot of times throughout the day, I really believe that the Holy Spirit is nudging us, prodding us, whispering our ear, hey, pay attention here. Hey, someone over there needs a word of encouragement. But we're just so busy that it almost gets muffled in the busyness and the voices of everything that goes around us. And my question, I believe, is that's being asked of us by the parable of Good Samaritan, are we too busy to love? You know, I heard this story um, that was told to me when I was in graduate school by a, a local pastor who I have a whole bunch of a respect for. And he pastors a church of a little over 10,000 people. And I had, I had the cool opportunity to be in a class with him with only 10 or 15 other people. And so we got to ask tons of questions. And this guy is one of those really high achievers, uh, really busy schedule, really involved. And he talked about his wrestling with uh, being too busy to have compassion, to being too busy to love. And he shared a story that changed him. And in sharing that story, it also changed me. And the story goes like this. There was a father and a daughter. And every day, the father would wait uh, at home on the curb for his daughter to come home from school. And his daughter would come home around 10 after 3. And day after day, she'd come home. They would br- embrace, and then they'd go about their day. But then there's this one day where it was about 3.15, he didn't see his daughter. Then it was 3.25, he still didn't see his daughter. 3.45, still no sign of his daughter. And then around 4 o'clock, he sees his daughter walking home, and finally she arrives. And when she arrives, she has tears in her eyes, and he says, what's going on? And he's like, where were you? I was worried about you. And the daughter looks up at his father and explains how one of her friends had a porcelain doll and she had dropped it and it had broken. And the father says, so it took you 30 minutes to help her put her doll together? And the daughter says, no, dad, 
It didn't take me 30 minutes to help her put the doll together. It took me 30 minutes to help her cry. That's a good story, isn't it? <laughs> and, the re- and, and you know something? It struck a chord both in this pastor and also in me. Be like, man, with all the busyness that's happening and all the places you need to get to, do you ever have time to allow the prodding of the Holy Spirit for you to have the compassion to cry with someone? Will love have freedom to interrupt your schedule? I believe that's the first challenge of this story. The second challenge, I believe, challenging question I believe that the story asks is, will you love when it's messy? I don't know, but, you know, love gets really messy the deeper you get into it. You know, um, it's easy to love uh, someone that is uh, clean, someone that is uh, nice and kind, but most of the time, love requires getting messy with people because we as people are complex. We're messy. We're, we're broken. We're hurt. And love requires us to get in the dirt with people. You know, I, I remember I used to have this really, like, uh, fantastic, idealistic view of, like, serving in homeless ministry and food shelters. Like, when I was young, I thought, like, man, I'm going to be bringing food to them. And when I bring food to them, they're going to be like, oh, thank you for blessing me with porridge. Like, if any of you have ever served at any type of shelter, any type, it is nothing like that. It's like, you get food, they're like, that's it? Look at it. Like this. It is nothing like that. And I realized... It's a lot easier. Like, it's almost like you almost wonder, is it love when you are kind and nice to someone just because they're kind and nice to you? I, it's really loving when you actually still have kindness and love someone for someone when they dislike you, when they're mean, when they're messy, when they're broken. And, and the reality is that if we're going to actually love, we have to be willing to get in the mess of people. We have to be willing to get in the mess of people. I'll tell you, when I was uh, at my previous church, I was a young adult pastor, and um, I actually got to live in, in, in the pastor's house all by myself. It was a four-bedroom, 2,000-square-foot house just for me. It was wonderful. It was like, like cribs, you know, MTV cribs. I, like, it really was. Like, it was, it was wonderful. I set up like a, 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 a big screen in the, in, the, in the downstairs den, and it was great. It was great. But I would open up my house sometimes when people need it help, you know? They might have been in transition. They didn't have where to go, so I'd open up. Well, I opened up my house to one young man that was in the ministry, and he'd been coming for a couple weeks, and he had just gotten out of jail. Things got really messy. <laughs> so he needed a place to stay, so I said, all right, come on over. Crash here for a couple nights. My goodness, it was about a month. <laughs> it was a month. Be wise. You know, I, get in the mess, but also be wise. So, I mean, I found a gun in the house, yeah, everyone's like, Ugh. yeah, I was like, a gun? I was like, I had to talk to him, but like, hey, man, you can't bring a gun in the house. Like, that's just not how we do things here. He's like, oh, my bad, pastor, my bad. <laughs> I was like, what? Like, well, I'm telling you, it gets messy. But then after a month, it was time, he, he actually, it was time to leave. And so he, 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 he transitioned. And then when he left, uh, I'm a big basketball card collector. I have a couple thousand basketball cards. I, I was huge, like when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, I see you are laughing. You already know how that goes. Every single Michael Jordan card was gone. Every. No, no, when I say every, every single, not even one. In fact, I had duplicates of cards. He took the duplicates. 
he could have left me, he could have taken one and left me one. Every single Michael Jordan card was gone. In fact, one of the most meaningful gifts I got two years ago was my godson gave me a Michael Jordan card. That was the very first Michael Jordan card I had since then. Man, I won't lie. I'm going to just be honest with you all. I had a lot of words in my heart. None of them were godly. None of them were kind. But you know what God did teach me about that experience? He said, man, if you're going to do this thing, get ready for a whole lot of mess. Like, he, 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 he got that right in there. He's like, listen, this is how this goes. There's a price to this thing called love. There's a price. It's costly. And the reality for all of us is that if we're actually going to love, we have to be willing to get messy. Remember, the Samaritan, this guy was bloody and beaten. He, he looked a mess. And the Samaritan put him on his own donkey, took him to end. He bandaged his wounds. He got in the mess. And all I'm, in, all I'm saying is, uh, again, we have to ask the Lord for wisdom on how to engage a mess. But I believe the challenging question is, will we engage a mess? Are we, allow, are we willing to allow the Holy Spirit to touch our hearts when things aren't clean? The third thing that I, a question I believe that the parable asks is, will we love with time, money, and resources? Time, money, and resources. Love requires these things. In fact, you can't actually love unless you sacrifice one of these things. Imagine that you are in, uh, a, imagine someone is, is pursuing you romantically and they say, hey, I really like you. I might even love you, but don't expect me to pay for any meals. Don't expect no gas money. Uh-uh. And just so you know, I'm busy all the time. Let's make this thing happen. All of us will be like, this is crazy. Oh, because you know something? All of us understand that's not what love is. We all understand that love actually requires sacrifice. It requires time. It requires resources. L- look at this, this Samaritan. Uh, he pays for, for his time in the inn. Um, he, I'm sure he would have had somewhere he should have been or could have been or wanted to go, but he, he puts the guy on his donkey using his own resources, takes him here. He, he says, I'm going to return. So that means he goes and does whatever he has to do, and then he has to still come back. Uh, this was a big investment. And the reality is that there's going to be occasions where God calls us to make big investments of our time, money, and resources. And the question that we have to wrestle with is, will we love enough to make those investments? Love requires these things. You can't have love without that. And then lastly, the question is, will you love those who don't love you? Now, the story presupposes that this man that was broken, left for dead on the road, he was a Jewish man. That's the presupposition of the story. That's, when I say the presupposition, the people listening to the story would have presupposed that. And so he is uh, broken. He did not, would not have ever wanted to interact with this Samaritan. In fact, it might have even been the case that if he knew that a Samaritan would have been the savior for him, he would have rather just died, rather just be dead than go home to his family and his neighborhood and be like, I was rescued by a Samaritan. He probably just would have rather been dead because of the disdain that they had. The Samaritan would have been aware of this. And the Samaritan could have very easily used that as an excuse not to demonstrate love, not to show love and kindness, not to allow that feeling of compassion that he felt to motivate him. He could have said, he doesn't like me anyway. I'm just going to go on my way. But the Samaritan doesn't do that. And here's the thing is, 
what kind of love do we have for those who don't love us back? And when I talk about loving people, what I mean is to wish well for them and to do well by them. Whoever it is, whether they like you or love you or don't, we still have to love. Martin Luther King Jr. said it well. He said, the Bible didn't call me to like them, but the Bible did call me to love them. You know, there's a story from the ancient desert fathers. Uh, this is a, a, a time in the early church history in like the second through fifth centuries uh, where there's groups of Christians and teachers that would live in the desert. And they have whole collections of stories. And uh, there's this one story uh, of this one desert father who was known for his wisdom and his understanding of different uh, aspects of the nature of God. And so uh, someone from the town goes to this desert father, and he asks this desert father, uh, can you tell me about what does it mean to love? Like, I really want to understand what love is. And so the desert father says, I can teach you. Uh, I'm going to give you a task here. So tonight, I want you to go to the outskirts of town where they, they, they discard all the dead bodies. It's, it's a basically this place where there's just a, it's a heap of bones. And what I want you to do is I want you just to be so kind, uh, speak soothing words to all these bones, and do that all night. I mean, I want you to express the greatest amount of affection towards these bones that you possibly could, have, uh, could express. And so this uh, student goes to the, to the edge of the town, and all night he cleans the bone. He prays for the bones. He, he blesses the bones. He does all these kind things for the bones all night. And then the next day he goes back to a teacher. And when he goes back to a teacher, he says, I did it all night. Uh, so what's the point? Well, the teacher says, all right, um, what did the bones do when you did all these things? Like, how did they respond? And he's like, they just sat there. They're, just, they're dead bones. And he's like, he's like, well, when you clean them and when you bless them, did they, do, did they do anything? And he's like, no, they didn't do anything. He's like, hmm. All right. He's like, here, do this. Tonight, go back to those same bones. But tonight, you're going to desecrate the bones. Uh, you're going to curse them, break them, treat them horrific. Do it all night. And he's like, okay. So he goes there, and he's desecrating the bones. He's breaking the bones, spitting on the bones, kicking the bones, doing all these things. And he comes back to the teacher and says, all right, so what's the point here? <laughs> and the teacher says, all right, so this time, did, did the, what did the bones do? Did they, how did they respond? And he's like, they didn't do anything. They just sat there. They're bones. And the teacher's like, well, now you understand love. You see, because love is whether people bless you or whether people curse you, your response is the same. And what I want to say to us all is, whether people bless us or whether people curse us, we ought to still wish well of them and do well by them. That's what love is. That's what love is. And with these four challenging questions, that again, I'm hoping that these questions are not interpreted as how-tos, but rather questions that I hope just kind of meditatively uh, bounce around in your heart and mind over the next couple of days, because the Holy Spirit has to blow some life into how does this get lived out in your present reality. But I hope that they, they, they seep in, because the reality is that the world that we live in is looking for love. You know, the world that we live in is looking uh, for a church and a group of believers that actually understand what was demonstrated and illustrated in this parable of the Good Samaritan. 
The, the world that we live, it, live in is looking for people that are actually going to be the hands and the feet of Christ. They're looking for people that don't just have a big talk, but have a big life. They're looking for people that are going to live out the Bible, which they preach. They're looking for people that are going to give an actual picture of what God looks like. Many of you have heard this phrase, but I'll say it again. Uh, your life may be the only Bible that someone ever reads. Uh, your life may be the only glimpse that people ever have of what God looks like. That's why this is vital. That's why this is important. This is bigger than just our love for our own sake. This is about love for the sake of witness to the world. In fact, the earliest church, um, their greatest witnessing tool was their love because when plagues and pandemics occurred, it was the church that would actually be on the front lines to bring healing and comfort to the people. In fact, there's an early uh, Christian thinker by the name of Tertullian. He was a North African scholar in the first or second century. And he writes in his literature about how the Roman guards, would, every time they talked about the Christians, they would be like this, oh, those loving group of people, those loving group of people. And they would say it somewhat in a mocking way because they saw them as weak, but they would, that, but, but, but they would notice that these people were loving because they were the hands and feet of Christ. And they took their, their role as believers and as the body of Christ seriously. And I pray that these questions would cause us to take it serious. But can I contend on a, just a deeper level with you guys? Just a deeper level. Can I just go a little bit more under the surface? And I want to make the case that if we're going to love like this, the only way we can do it is from the place of overflow. What I mean by that is at some point we have to have a sincere, authentic, true encounter with the love of God. We have to have a real encounter where God's love just pours into us in such a way that our overflow is our love to others around us. There's a layer to this parable, the Good Samaritan, uh, that goes a little bit deeper. And, and this perspective was actually put forth by Augustine in the fourth century. And what he believes about this passage is that Jesus Christ himself inserts his own character into the passage as the Good Samaritan. And what he makes the case is that the people that were listening to this story of the day Let's back up. When we listen to the story, we see ourselves as either being the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. And the challenge is be the Samaritan. Don't be the priest. Don't be the, the Levite. When the ancient people that Jesus was talking to, which were a majority, blue-collar workers, fishermen, traders, farmers, herders, when they heard the story, they never would have put themselves in the position of the priest or Levite because that's too holy. That, that, that's too, too highly esteemed. They're not educated on that level. They're not faithful to Torah to that extent. They're not experts of the law. So they would have never seen themselves as being even possibly the priest or Levite. And they certainly would not have seen themselves as being the Samaritan because they had such disdain for the Samaritan. But you know who they would have seen themselves as? They would have seen themselves as that person that was broken on the road, beat up, left for dead. In fact, they would have been very familiar with that very passage from Jerusalem to Jericho. They would have known how dangerous it was. They would have heard stories of friends that had gotten beaten up, that had been robbed on that. And what they would have said is, man, if I'm broken and, and beat up on the road, like, who's going to be my savior? Who's going to be the one to rescue me? Who's going to be my healer? 
And if you go back to the original question of the, the expert in the law, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What Augustine actually uh, assumes is the way you're going to inherit eternal life is recognize you're the person that's beaten up on the road. You're the one that's been that's beaten up by the sin of, that you've committed, by the sin of a broken world, by life. You're beaten up, and there's a healer that's coming to rescue you. Look at the parallels between the Good Samaritan and Jesus. The Good Samaritan is rejected by the Jews. Who also is rejected by the Jews? The Good Samaritan comes, and he pours on the oil and wine and becomes a healer to the man that's broken on the road. Who's the healer? Jesus. The good Samaritan goes and he actually pays the debt for the man. Who pays our sin debt? Jesus. The good Samaritan says, I promise I will return. Who makes a promise to return? Jesus. The good Samaritan ultimately becomes the savior figure in the story. And so what Augustine proposes, and I would even propose to you, is that salvation is actually hidden in the in this story in so much that if you're a listener and you actually hear the story and put yourself in the place of the person who is broken on the road and say, I need a savior. I need a healer. Guess what? Jesus is there to say, here I am. The people's hearts were being prepped and primed for his revelation of being the true savior because it exposes the broken need that they have. Why do I say all this? Is that if we're actually going to live like the Good Samaritan, we have to recognize and, and that we have to be healed by the true, goodest, bestest ever Samaritan Jesus Christ himself. And when we actually walk in this healing reality that Jesus comes and bandages our wounds, and sometimes it takes time. I love this passage because it, notice that when he bandages his wounds, it doesn't say he was revived right away. In fact, it says, like, he, it says he took care of him, and it says he's going to return. Sometimes there's a process to some of the healing that we need. Because some of us have been beat up pretty bad. Some of us have been hurt pretty bad by the sins of others. Some of us have suffered hurt by the sins that we've committed. Some of us have experienced the hurt of just being in a sinful, broken world, meaning the world has fallen. That means there's natural disasters. Miscarriages happen. Loved ones die suddenly. And that leaves us broken and beat up on the world, in, this, in this world. We're broken on that road there. But Jesus comes and he sees us and he heals us. He pays our debt, and he doesn't leave us. Yeah, he says he returns. And so the challenge I want us to leave with is a precursory challenge. Yeah, we're called to love. This whole couple of uh, months here, we've been talking about loving God and also loving others. But I want us to leave with this of we also have to receive the love. We have to have a perspective that we need healing. Because when we receive the love, loving others becomes just a natural outpouring. It becomes instinctive. It, because, it becomes the thing that we do as a knee-jerk reaction because we've encountered God's real love. If you would, can you stand to your feet? I want to pray for us in this room. And I say us uh, because... All of us need healing, 
myself first and foremost. And my prayer this morning for us is that if you find yourself right now, today, in a particularly broken place, meaning when you heard the story, even the first round, you already saw yourself, man, as that person broken on the road. I want to pray God's healing presence to come. I want to pray God's healing presence to just interact and engage with you in a way that is so meaningful. Come now, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Be sweet to us. Come now. And then for some of you, you're that broken person on the road, but you've never, ever even had an initial encounter with Jesus. You've never, ever came to a, 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 a place, step one of Jesus, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. And if that's you, I want to pray for you too. And so in this moment of just worship and in this moment of of deep posturing right now, we're going to invite God to come. And I like to lift my hands upwards like this. And the reason I do this is because it just uh, represents a posture of my heart. We always say this isn't magical, this isn't, isn't, isn't anything uh, weird, but just a way of positioning our body to receive from God because it reflects the disposition of our heart. And so now in this moment, let's just pray and ask God to come. So most high God, I just thank you. I thank you for your word, Lord God. I thank you that your word speaks to us. Lord, I just pray for those who have recently lost loved ones, Lord God. I just feel, I feel led for some of you that are grieving right now, lost of loved ones, recent, like in the last week or two. I pray, Lord God, your healing presence right now for those. Come now. Lord, right now we just posture and position ourselves to receive your love, Lord God. We posture and position ourselves to receive your healing right now. Lord God, we open our hearts and say, say we want all that you have to give us, Lord God. Lord God, I pray that there would be uh, a, a, just a filling that would happen even now in this moment. Lord God, so that when we think about loving you and loving others, it would be out of a place of overflow. It wouldn't be something that we have to conjure up, but it would be just a natural position that that of a disposition of our lives because of the love that we've received from you. And so, Lord God, touch all that are gathered here, Lord God, who find themselves in that particularly broken place. Who feel like they're on the side of the road. Be their God be their God. And for anyone here that has never made a decision to follow Jesus, I want to just lead you in a prayer. And the prayer is just a confession of faith. And you can say these words in your, in your heart. You can say them in the way that's meaningful to you. But it goes something like this. Most high God, I am broken. Yeah, I've sinned. And I've been affected by sin. But I thank you that you are a kind healer. I thank you for your death on the cross. I thank you for your resurrection. 
And in this moment, right here, I give you my heart. I give you my life. I make you Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen and amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Um, if you were in that first category where you felt like, man, you're in a really broken place, and you felt like, man, I've been beat up for whatever reason, we are going to have people up here that are prepared and ready to pray for you. And so I want to invite you to come to receive prayer. Um, if you're in that second category where you made a decision for the very first time, um, we want to connect with you. We, we want to we follow up with you. We want to just process that with you. And so you can indicate that on the connection card. So you can just mark this, that you decide to become a believer. Uh, you can also text follow to the number 201-584-7188. And we'll follow up with you. We're going to follow up with you. We're going to take a moment. Uh, we have uh, our offering bas- baskets are on the far, my far right. And you can just pass them by. You can put offering in there. You can put also your connection card in there. Uh, if for some reason you miss the offering basket, uh, there will be ushers at the door to also uh, collect the offerings. But I want you guys to, to let those questions sink in as we go. May those questions just bounce around in the depths of your heart. May they be uh, present realities as God, by His Holy Spirit, begins to work in our hearts as we think about what God has done through us over these last two months as we've dove into 40 days of love. And so I just want to pray a blessing of you before we go. And so the blessing is, may the Lord keep you. May He give His, His peace to you. May He cause His face to shine upon you. And may He go forth as people that love God and love each other out of the overflow. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.